0: This is Get Ready for Sunday, a more or less weekly podcast reviewing scripture readings for Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. In the next few minutes, I'll do my best to clear away at least some of the obstacles modern readers encounter when trying to extract the true richness and wisdom of scripture. Barriers like cultural differences, nuances in translations, and the entirely different worldviews held by people today as compared to the worldview of the original audience. In preparing these little reviews, I do use published works of genuine scripture scholars far more qualified than I, and respected commentators far more insightful than I. But fair warning, all this information is sifted through my own tiny brain. This Sunday marks the halfway point of Lent, we call it Laetare Sunday. Laetare is the infinitive form of a Latin verb meaning to rejoice. This episode, we'll be looking at the readings for year C for the fourth Sunday, Laetare Sunday, in Lent. Easter is at last within sight. That's why we're happy. Flowers, which are omitted from the environment during the rest of Lent, may appear in the sanctuary on this day. Mass readings are more upbeat and have a theme of joyfulness. We do have plenty of serious soul work to do yet in preparation for Easter, but today we take a deep, relaxing breath. We start with the first reading, which comes from the book of Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have removed the reproach of Egypt from you. While the Israelites were encamped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated the Passover on the evening of the 14th of the month. On the day after the Passover, they ate of the produce of the land in the form of unleavened cakes and parched grain. On that same day after the Passover, on which they ate of the produce of the land, the manna ceased. No longer was there manna for the Israelites, Who that year ate of the yield of the land of Canaan. We're in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua. It starts with a description of Gilgal and a second mass circumcision ritual that occurred at this location. The ritual was for all the males who had been born during the years of wandering. Gilgal is first mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. However, it receives its primary meaning and significance here in the book of Joshua. Gilgal was the first camp of the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan to enter the Holy Land. The Israelites erected a circle of 12 stones there, one for each tribe as a commemoration of their miraculous crossing of the river. This crossing of the Jordan, at the end of the wandering of this new nation, recalled the crossing at its beginning the crossing of the Red Sea. In this instance, priests of the people carried the Ark of the Covenant to the river and stood in the waters near the bank. As the priests remained holding the Ark and standing in the water, the flow of the river ceased from upstream and the riverbed became dry land, allowing the entire nation to cross with ease. The stones for the memorial circle were gathered from the dry riverbed before the Jordan resumed its flow. The name Gilgal in popular etymology is said to be a result of God's declaration to Joshua upon the Jews' arrival in Canaan. Today I have removed the reproach of Egypt from you. The Hebrew word for removed is galoti, leading to calling the place Gilgal. There is an additional play on words here. The stones at Gilgal can also be seen as God rolling back the reproach of Egypt. The Hebrew word for rolling back, as in removing, is gal. The use of the word Gilgal in Hebrew generally denotes a circle of stones. Archeologists normally use the term to refer to a type of structure found almost exclusively in the Jordan Valley. This camp, Gilgal, served as Joshua's base of operations during the initial conquest of the Promised Land. The exact location of this camp has been lost to history. Scholars have suggested at least five different locations for the various mentions of Gilgal in the Hebrew Scriptures. Most of them are on the east side of Palestine, on or near the border with Jericho. During the long years of wandering, as attentive and obedient as Moses was to God's promptings, he did let the uncomfortable circumcision requirement slide. By the time Joshua took over for Moses, the new generation of Hebrew men who had entered Canaan were not circumcised. They were born after the initial mass ceremony at the outset of the long journey. Before the nation could be settled in Canaan, all Jewish males had to be circumcised, this time with knives made from stones of flint. This was done at a place near the camp that was later called Gebraith Hearloth, which, I regret to have to tell you, means the Hill of Foreskins it's in the bible people you can look it up that's what happened immediately before the scene that opens our reading at this mass where god tells joshua today i have removed the reproach of egypt from you what was this reproach One might speculate that the reproach removed was the lowly status of the Jews as an enslaved group of tribes during their 400 years under domination by the Egyptians. By virtue of the trials they endured in the wilderness and the many gifts of provision and protection received from God, they were now a nation united. They were in a land where they could practice their religion openly and without fear. No longer would they be forced to labor for the benefit of others. Their labors now would bring profit to their own families and tribes. Another transition from dependence can be seen in the end of their diet of manna. No longer would they await the gift of food from heaven. Now they would labor to bring forth their own food from the land. This passage today begins by noting the celebration of Passover, for the first time in this land of promise. Details about the timing of the celebration, the offerings mentioned in the text, and the absence of mention of the lamb required for the meal leave the story a bit confusing. There are unleavened cakes mentioned. This suggests the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was only incorporated into Passover celebrations much later in Jewish history. The historical questions, however, are far less important than the theological meaning of celebrating God's having removed the people from the reproach of Egyptian captivity, with all that it meant in limiting their lives, and bringing them successfully into this land so long ago promised to their ancestors. That is the joy in which we share as we hear this bit of the Hebrew Scripture. As we continue the Lenten journey anticipating Easter, we are reminded of one journey, this one, of much longer duration, that came to its first level of fulfillment at Gilgal. The responsorial psalm for the day, from Psalm 34, is a continuation of all the praise for the goodness of the Lord in providing this people with what they needed through the centuries. The form of the poem here is known as acrostic. That is, it is structured to follow the order of the entire Hebrew alphabet. The foundational message carried by this form is completeness. Those who live in total trust of and dependence on the Lord are referred to as the lowly, Anawim in Hebrew. The psalmist models for all who hear the proper way to praise God. If the attribution of the psalm's authorship to David is correct, the psalm is not at all contemporaneous with the events we just heard about in Joshua. David's reign over the reunified kingdom of Israel would be about 400 years in the future. Nonetheless, the imagery is a fine match with the events recalled in our first reading. The opening dual imperatives in the Psalm, taste and see, are an appropriate way of remembering the Passover meal mentioned in the first line we heard from Joshua. I think you'll hear more good matches for yourself. I'll include the refrain only at the beginning and the end. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times His praise shall be ever in my mouth. Let my soul glory in the Lord. The lowly will hear me and be glad. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us together extol his name. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him, that you may be radiant with joy and your faces may not blush with shame. When the poor one called out, the Lord heard, and from all his distress he saved him. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Moving to the second reading from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we hear some basic Pauline Christological theology. Paul tells us it is through Christ that God reconciles humanity to himself. Reconciliation is the process of two parties, separated by some injury or injuries done between them, coming to a full understanding of the damage each has either inflicted or suffered, then engaging in a mutual effort of forgiveness and, as much as possible, restitution. Our sacrament of penance and reconciliation is our ever-present and often needed opportunity to experience God's infinite mercy and forgiveness on an individual, very intimate level. Even here we do well to remember that, as in all things redemptive, it is God, through Christ, who initiates the healing. Paul emphasizes the magnitude of the change that this reconciliation brings and reminds the community members of their responsibility to live lives that carry that reconciliation effectively into the world. Here is Paul's message for this Mass. Brothers and sisters, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, as if God were appealing through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our own sake, he made him to be sin, who did not know sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In the Gospel at this Mass, we hear the parable of the prodigal son. This parable is only found in Luke's Gospel. It is an obvious selection for Laetare Sunday because of its overarching message of mercy for all of us who struggle with staying true to the path toward full union with God. This story comes in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, which could easily be called The chapter of the lost. In this chapter Luke records three parables from Jesus. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, commonly called the prodigal son. I've heard and read other commentators argue for even more titles for this story. One spoke of calling it the prodigal father Inasmuch as prodigal can also mean lavish and extravagant without the added denotation of imprudence or wastefulness. The father's love and mercy toward his lost son is certainly lavish and extravagant. I've read one commentator who wanted to concentrate on the apparent frustration and jealousy shown by the older son and call the parable the parable of the self-righteous son. Now, this is a long gospel passage, so I will resort to a sort of interlinear commentary. I will try to make it obvious vocally which are my words and which are Luke's. If you want to be sure that you can make that separation, put the text in front of you and read along. If you don't see on the page what you hear me saying, that would be the commentary. Here we go with a reading from the Holy Gospel. According to Luke, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them Jesus addressed this parable A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, Give me the share of your estate that should come to me." So the father divided the property between them. Here comes my first question. Just how did the father do that? Did he sell off part of his land? Did he cash out the younger son somehow? As with many of my questions, I have no answer to offer. We must assume that the younger son took his inheritance in some form of liquid asset. The legalities of inheritance in Jewish culture are set forth in the book of Leviticus, and this is not strictly by the book. But the details here are far less important than the storytelling. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. A life of dissipation. The most concise definition that is fitting here is drunkenness and carnal depravity. So think of him as doing a stint with a heavy metal band so he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. He longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. It's not specifically stated, but it is reasonable to assume that the young man is Jewish. He is in Gentile territory. Jews don't raise swine, and clearly he comes from a family with wealth. Tending swine for a gentile must be a dreadful humiliation for him. This formerly wealthy young Jewish man is about as far removed from his native culture as he can get, and in this situation it appears he is also being ill-treated, not even having enough to eat. Coming to his senses, he thought, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough to eat? But here am I, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired workers. I recently read one commentary by a group of New Testament scholars who are Jewish, that noted the young man does not explicitly recognize his own guilt. He does recognize his hunger and the prospect of eliminating that hunger as a servant of his father. He rehearses what he will say to his father, but there is no internal dialogue about his own sinfulness it can seem as though he is simply trying to figure out what to say that will work to gain his father's acceptance. It's an interesting point, and I don't think the text directly refutes it. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Again, from that same commentary comes another interesting observation. The stories that began this chapter, the story of the shepherd who lost his sheep and the woman who lost her coin, in those stories, both left where they were and went out to actively look for what was lost. The father did not leave his home to search for his son. Yes, he saw his son while he was still far off and ran to him, but no proactive search had taken place. Nonetheless, the word translated here as filled with compassion has a very strong visceral connotation, and it is a gut-level emotion. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. There's a two-pronged approach in use here. The son renounces his worthiness as a son, yet he still addresses his father as father. That likely plays a role in the father's response. But his father ordered his servants, quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Then the celebration began. Whether deeply sincere or not, the son's speech worked, and worked better than he had imagined. Into the party he goes, and we don't hear from or about him again. Now the older son had been out in the field, and on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has him back, safe and sound. He became angry, and when he refused to enter the house, His father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. This reaction from the older brother is reminiscent of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew's Gospel. Like the laborers hired early in the day, who saw those hired later paid a full day's wage and then expected more than they had agreed to be paid, this older son is jealous of the father's generosity. The older son is resentful even though nothing has been taken from him. Do you think as I do? that the elder brother really wants to see the younger man punished instead of welcomed. He said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. Oh, this is important, and it is so easy to miss. Everything I have is yours. In effect, the father is saying, I will not divide my property in two again. Your brother has indeed had and wasted his share. Your share remains fully yours. The father is demonstrating the difference between forgiveness and pardon. Clearly, he has forgiven his young son. He is welcoming him back home. A pardon, however, is not within the father's ability to give half the family fortune is gone. The young man will not be made rich again unless he does something to create that wealth. To forgive is to put aside guilt and enmity. To pardon is to eliminate consequences. It is from the consequences that one learns from mistakes. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found." Before the ever-present hard work of the estate begins again, it is fitting to take time to celebrate reunification, to assure the returned one of his welcome and his worth as a member of the family. Well, here's some more good news. That's the end of it for today. I am still Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks for clicking in. I hope you find this time worthwhile. If you do, please let somebody else know that they are welcome to join us. And may you see God's blessing in your life every day.